Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Judy Stewart and this is Unpaused. Today I'm speaking to Suad Christina Saeed, who describes herself first and foremost as a chronic overthinker. Sue's career in marketing and advertising is interesting in itself. For instance, she worked as part of the team behind TEDx in Sydney. But the reason I'm talking to her today is because of the investment she began to make at an early age in working things out. At a time when everyone else her age was benchmarking success in terms of income, partners, looking good, trophy houses and glamorous travel, Sue was trying to figure out what really matters enough to make happiness endure, focusing on how she wanted to feel at a given time rather than what she wanted to own or achieve or become. She's joining me now from Singapore. Sue, welcome to Unpaused. Thanks, Judy. It's great to be here. You're in the midst of a great career in marketing, but you're also trying to forge a new one as a mentor and coach. Is this a pause or are you doing the two side by side? And at what point do you think you're going to feel confident enough to make a choice? I did take a pause. And during that three to four month pause, I took the plunge, if you will, into beginning that journey to make that coaching aspiration a reality. And so during that time, I studied, I enrolled in accreditation so that I could be an ICF registered coach. And I also pursued other studies in the psychology space, as well as taking on more formal clients in order to extend my experience. And whilst now I'm back in the marketing world and I'm continuing to grow in my company, I am also running this on the side. So it's a little bit of both. And in terms of when I will have the opportunity to take the plunge and and really make the switch, well, that's, I guess, part of my story that's still unwritten. So to describe your marketing career, what exactly is it that you do? I work for a global brand experience agency and what that means is we deliver marketing programs from events and experiential to integrated campaigns to the creation of content for many global brands. And do you think that has informed the whole mentoring thing? Have you had a mentoring role inside the company as well? Yes. So I'm a consultant, really. So I work with people. And so whilst all of the nice marketing polish around my job exists, ultimately, I'm in the business of connecting with people, clients, consulting them on their programs, their business objectives. And so I've always had this very people-centric role. And as part of that, I've had a team. And one of my favorite aspects of my role is nurturing junior talent and helping young, ambitious team members to realize what it is they want to do. And whether that's in the company or outside the company, I've always taken this very holistic approach to this is the start of your career. I don't expect you to be in my team or in this business forever. So how do I help you on this journey to make this chapter a really valuable one for what you want to do in the future? done a bit of digging around Sue (laughs) and I see that you were very academic and that you attended the very high achieving and historic Sir Joseph Williamson's mathematical school before going to university. If you were so clever at school did it mean that working out what to do in life was all plain sailing? Yes and no. It was mapped out 
by everyone but me. And I think that's a really big challenge when it comes to growing up. I have quite a strong academic background. I went to a very prestigious university. I went to a great school. I studied very kind of well-regarded subjects and did my A-levels and studied French, German, English literature, economics. I studied politics at university at a red brick school. And you wouldn't see this looking at my CV or in my transcripts, but my real passions from a very, very young age were the creative arts. And yes, English literature was a part of that. I've been a kind of voracious reader since I was maybe seven years old. And I loved to write. Creative writing was my favorite subject. I loved art. All of those right-brained activities were amongst my favorite. But I was also very mathematical. I was very analytical. And I found myself around the age of 17, planning for my next chapter at university and being told that it would be a waste if I didn't follow what were perceived to be academic subjects, subjects like politics or history or mathematics essentially broad subjects in the UK are the kinds of degrees that get you into the consulting firms or the investment banks or into prestigious kind of companies. And I remember then feeling really torn and confused because I felt as though I was good at the things that I liked as well, that I didn't understand why the world didn't seem to have faith that I could earn a living or succeed in those areas. But these kind of much harder um, areas, which were much more crowded with applicants, I was somehow going to rise to the top in that space. So I think there was a plan, but it wasn't mine. And then following university and entering the working world, it became my mission to really begin to unlearn all of the conditioning that I'd had around what I should be doing and how I should be living and the goals that I should be pursuing. And that journey is what really has brought me to where I am today. And it's been gradual and it, you know, it started with small decisions such as deciding not to go um, into a corporate, corporate route and kind of landing on advertising and marketing as this perceived sweet spot between strategy, analytics and creative. And then gradually realizing that trying to be everything and trying to keep everyone happy really wasn't going to serve me either. And now I'm at that point where I'm realizing that trying to do a little bit of everything rather than committing wholeheartedly to one thing is really not productive and it's also draining, it's exhausting. So I'm kind of tired of trying to fit everyone's mold, but it took that plan being created and then me looking at it many years later and saying, actually, I don't know why I'm working to this plan. I need to create my own. And were your parents supportive in that or did they want to sort of channel you in that more structured, conventional direction? My parents are incredibly supportive on the whole. My mum is my absolute rock. She is the most incredible woman and her story is incredible. She's a lawyer and so she's got this incredible way of looking at the world that I, as her daughter, hate and love all at the same time. Um, (laughs) She has been incredibly supportive and has consulted me through every major decision I have made. However, she did have me at a really young age. She was 21 years old when I was born. And so when I was in my teenage years and thinking about my future career and which university I might go to or what sort of 
goals I might pursue, she was incredibly young herself. And so I think at that point, there was a lot more fear in how she directed me. And she did urge me to think about really practical things like how will you make money? How will you support a family? Where are you going to have the most guaranteed likelihood of success? And so I think that came from a place of care, but ultimately did sway my decisions. This has been a year, such an unusual year, but one in which cultural diversity has really come to the fore of public consciousness. You've told me that your name has been something of a mixed blessing. You've lived in the UK, you've lived in Australia, now in Singapore. You've said that you now have a much better understanding of what you call chronic discrimination. What's been your experience of that, Sue, and how have you reconciled it all now? It's an interesting one because I think... I have a hard time reconciling my experience being discriminated. And I think that's because I have really tried to block that out for a really long time. So in its earliest form, and this isn't an uncommon story, my name is really unusual. I grew up in a low socioeconomic part of Southeast England. I went to a predominantly, if not almost all, white Anglo school. I spent a lot of time around kids who had no experience of other cultures or hadn't met anyone with, with names like mine. And no one really took the time to explain that in our schools. So, you know, it's just, you just become the brown kid in the class. And I think that really did shape me because at that point, I made a conscious decision to try and fit in. And so I spent the next 30 years of my life really trying to adapt and assimilate. And I did it again and again at each new chapter of my life. So when I got to university, I improved my elocution. I thought about how I talked about my past. And, you know, I'm kind of ashamed of it now, I think, in some ways around how I've sort of tried to mask over core aspects of my identity. But I think that's really the impact of that chronic discrimination. There wasn't anything horrific that happened to me, that an acute moment of utter pain, which kind of tore apart my sense of self. But just generally speaking, over the 31 years of my life, I've experienced little knocks, little jokes, as people would describe them around my Arabic background, my name or what it sounds like. You know, I've heard so many variations, (laughs) some more insulting than others. And it's all seemed to be in jest, but it's bullying and it's discrimination. And it wears away at people 1% at a time until one day you wake up and there's nothing really left of you. And I'm remarkably resilient, I'm remarkably adaptable, but this has had a profound impact on me because now in my 30s, I'm finding myself trying to reconnect and rebuild a lot of my relationship with myself and my background and where I'm from. And rather than trying to block it out and getting frustrated with my parents and blaming them for giving me this identity, I'm now trying to reconcile with that. And it's a really painful process and it shouldn't be that way. And so that's kind of in my experience. And I'm one of many, many people who have had very different experiences. But I think I grew up seeing two parents, one 
and a powerful, strong woman who refuses to change for anybody. My mum's Polish. She has a thick Polish accent. She's incredibly proud and she's disabled and she refuses to appease anyone. And I've spent a lot of my life kind of cringing, feeling embarrassed at times because she is so defiant about meeting people in the middle or bending to their will. And then my father, he's French Algerian, Arabic name. He changed his name for convenience in the UK. He's adapted to having a very British accent. And I looked at them both. And to be honest, his life seemed easier for a long time. And so I think I saw those role models and thought, okay, it's not about what's right. It's what's going to make this journey more palatable for me. And now I'm finally feeling that fire and saying, no, this isn't right. And I I refuse to do that anymore. And I think that's helped a lot by the direction that the world has taken and the fact that I no longer feel alone in this. And what about at work? I know you've said in the past that you're involved in diversity and inclusion initiatives at work. You would be the perfect person to be doing that, I'd imagine. Yes. So I am involved in DEI at work and I co-founded an initiative a few years ago that was centered around mental health and well-being in the workplace. And that continues to run and is a global internal program. And the mental health aspect in terms of work is something that I'm really passionate about because the creative industries and particularly the agency world is a very intense, high-powered world where there's really high expectations. There's a lot of pressure. Obviously, we're a service business, which brings with it a whole stream of challenges. And that's where I've kind of focused my energy in terms of DEI in the workplace. I do think DEI in the workplace has a tendency to fixate on social categories or visible differences. So, you know, we focus around women or we focus around LGBTQI. And my favorite types of DEI programs are ones which bring communities together and say, okay, well, what makes you unique? What's your lived experience? Because it really isn't about the fact that, you know, I have a mixed background. It's really about my experience and my lived experience and, you know, stories like the ones I just shared with you. How have they impacted my ability to see the world? How do they enable me to see opportunities that others don't? And what kind of tools or strategies or skills do I have in order to build resilience and be adaptable that I can share with others? And What does everyone else have? Because we all have those different experiences. So a lot of the work I do is really trying to focus around sharing stories and building mental and emotional resilience. There'll be people listening to this podcast who have no idea where to begin after the year we've had, and who feel they're at the mercy of forces that are wildly beyond their control. And the things that you're talking about in the office, those bigger issues that they don't necessarily have a part in, but they're at the mercy of. A couple of months back, you wrote that you haven't given up on 2020 yet. Do you think you still feel like that? I haven't given up on 2020, but I have changed what I expect from 2020. And I think that's important. Personally, I don't think we should ever give up 
on any minute, second moment that we're above ground breathing (laughs) and alive. I think if anything, the pandemic has shown us that everything is sacred. We we have no idea what can happen around the corner that's going to fundamentally change our existence or our ability to connect or be close to those that we love or to take care of ourselves, our health and well-being. So for me, I haven't given up on 2020, but I also don't believe that now for everyone is the right time to push yourself further to try and maximize this downtime that appears to have come out of nowhere. I think the answer is really taking small steps and This to me is a brilliant time to reconnect with ourselves. And in my coaching practice and my broader philosophy that I share with everyone that I come into contact with is that you need to start with yourself and you need to build self-awareness and self-awareness starts with self-reflection. And I think that's a really important message. And I think especially for young people who are in this very challenging period of their adulthood, where they are trying to work out what to do. And we're subject to so many influences. We're comparing ourselves to others um, or others' highlights reels. And now is a really, really good time, even if you feel utterly overwhelmed by the state of the world, to tune in with yourself and to take a moment and to begin or continue cultivating that self-awareness. Who am I? What do I want? What's important to me? And so for me, the message isn't give up on 2020 and wait until 2021. Firstly, there's no guarantees that the turn of the year is going to bring any radical changes. But secondly, this is still precious time and it's time that we're alive and we're breathing and we have the opportunity to find a way to make this time valuable. Sue, there are two things I want to talk to you about in particular. One is this journaling practice because it seems to me that it brings together all of your mathematical analytical skills in terms of seeing patterns and gathering data, but to the creative side, really trying to dig into what you feel you've done well, what you'd like to aspire to and all of these things. Can you just, in a very practical sense, in terms of self-awareness and self-knowledge, tell me what it is you physically do to start mapping out or exploring what it is that makes you you. The thing with life is, and I think we all know this, there's no manual, there's no formula, there's no signposts. It really, as uh, Scott Peck says, is a rocky path through the wilderness. And I, and I truly believe that. I think, you know, everyone has to make their own way through it. So with that in mind, the only way to start is with ourselves. And that really means starting with introspection and reflection and in order to cultivate that sense of self-understanding, that sense of self-comprehension, self-awareness. And we need that in order to make decisions. And I think especially as young people, we make decisions often influenced by others, whether that's our parents, whether that's our education, whether that's our peers. And as we were speaking about earlier, when you're thinking about how we grow up, a lot of our plan is created for us by others or co-created at a time where other people have more weight, clout, influence than we do. 
But the thing is, is it's a lot easier to make decisions when we know what we want and what makes us feel fulfilled and makes us feel joy. And I think the biggest problem is a lot of us have no idea what those things are. And it's not about making the choice. You know, I call myself indecisive. My problem isn't that I'm indecisive. It's the fact I'm driven by fear, fear of making the wrong decision. And so for me, it kind of goes back to that famous quote by Aristotle, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And that's why the foundational practice, that the, the simplest place to start in my mind for someone who wants to better navigate life, get to know themselves better, is a self-reflection practice, if you will. And this is really about looking at moments in your life and recognizing how you feel in them in almost or ideally in real time. So this really isn't planning. It's not goal setting. It's not thinking about the future and making assumptions about what may or may not make you happy in 20 or 30 years time. And it's also not deep diving into the past. Practice of self-reflection is really a cadence, whether it's daily or weekly, probably not so much more than that, but you know, it can be maybe fortnightly, where you check in with yourself and you observe moments where you have felt energized, where you have felt empowered where you just felt joy for, for no reason where your mood lifted and these moments are often fleeting they're often not in an average week they aren't resemblant of big milestones like getting a new job or getting a promotion or signing a lease or buying a house or all these sorts of things it's really just these small moments and so what I personally advocate for is a practice which is based around what makes you feel good and what doesn't make you feel too good. And I have a practice that I share on my Lost and Found website, a template that can be worked through each week. And for me, I have been working with that practice weekly for almost a decade. And through that simple act of acknowledgement and then creating some commitments off the back of that for the following week, to try and bring more of the joy and remove some of the tension. I have learned more about myself than I could ever have imagined. And as someone who works in the marketing and business world, what you come to realize is it's really just data and you can collect this information about yourself. I have countless, countless books and notepads and journals with my reflections from the past 10 years. And at three months and six months, I advocate for kind of a review of that and a consolidation of what you found. And there's something incredibly cathartic about that, but it's also incredibly practical. It is information and data that's not reliant on your memory and our memories are flawed. So when you actually go back and you look to a particular week at work or a particular moment in your relationship or an evening spent with friends, you really are able to see how you felt in that given moment. And you are able to deduce not what you think your life should be like, or what you think would make you happy or what Instagram is telling you a great life looks like, but actually where you have felt the most joy. And so for me, the foundational practice is really that start with checking in with yourself and there are other things you can do. I mean, I haven't just been doing that for 10 years, but certainly six months of that, I can almost guarantee that you will feel a profound shift in yourself just from that alone. What about the self-discipline that that would take though, Sue? How do you make yourself do it rather than walk around and do everything else but that? It's like any good habit, isn't it really? You first of all have to make it convenient for yourself. So something I always say is find the same time and place in your calendar each week. So carve out the time. It's 
Now I say the most important meeting I have each week is with myself. I can somehow find it in myself to show up um, for my other meetings and not let people down. So carve it out, treat it like a meeting. It's a part of your week and calendar. I've been very lucky. The companies I've worked for as part of me advocating for this type of practice and, and the direct kind of benefit to me, I have been able to do that on work time. I think good businesses should be allowing people to take some time, an hour a week to calibrate. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is make it enjoyable. Whilst I use the word meeting, this isn't a, a chore. It shouldn't be a slog. It really should be a moment in your week, which you look forward to. And so the way that I do that is I make it lunch or a breakfast. When I was in Sydney, I would go down to the beach and sit on the grass. And I find a way to do it that's not doesn't revolve around your home, doesn't revolve around your workplace. Ideally, you find a neutral space where you can think freely and you buy yourself breakfast or a pastry or whatever it is that brings you joy and sit there and engage in connecting with, with the page. Who would say no to a, to a breakfast with themselves on a Friday morning? So having learned these things about yourself, I think the other side of the coin is this sort of self-advocacy. So you sort of come to a point where you think, okay, well, I, I now have more clarity on what I want. What have you learned from the world of marketing, for instance, that informs that advocacy that someone has to engage in for themselves or to take a step towards getting what they want? It's a tough one, Judy, because the truth is, and and, I, and I'll be completely transparent about this, there's so much theory about how to deliver a great marketing campaign, what it needs to do, how it needs to be received, strategy, essentially. Whenever we start a marketing campaign, we start with a strategy. And it's the same thing in designing your life or getting to know yourself. You, you, You start with the insights, which is those data points that I mentioned that you capture on yourself. And then you draw conclusions and from that, and then you create a strategy for your career or for your five years or whatever it is that you're looking ahead for and we all know that strategies and planning is great and it can be perfect in many ways but it means nothing until it's executed and when something's executed there are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns and things will fly in and kind of derail our planned progress and I think it's the same in both and so One of the things that's really, really tough is we have to have a strategy or a plan that's informed by real insights. However, you have to not hold on to that plan at all costs. Like you have to have a sense of adaptability and willingness to stay open to how the journey is going to unfold. And you have to kind of be, as an individual, resilient and prepared for that. And I think that's something that you can't just teach in a course, that you can't just read a book and have. That's where that self-advocacy really, really comes in. And like I said, making decisions is what kind of mitigates those sorts of things. So if we're on a campaign and if I'm running on an event, things will go wrong. And the skill is really being able to make a decision quickly about what to do next. It's the same thing in life. I think the ability and the courage in order to be able to make those decisions and make them at pace and ensure they are the right ones is, I think it's a lifetime's work in some ways. And part of what drives that will be our own self-awareness and self-knowledge. And that, I think, is something that I still struggle with. I 
understand this stuff, Judy. I, I live it. I reflect. I have genuinely created a life that I'm incredibly proud of, that I really love. But I still have a hard, hard time making big decisions. You know, I toy with where my career needs to go next. I know I'm attracted to the coaching and personal improvement space. I know I can, I can do this, but there's still something holding me back from taking the plunge from saying, do you know what? I'm going to put my attention over here. And that thing that holds us back is always fear. Always. You can call it whatever you want and we drill it down and I can ask why, why, why. And eventually we'll get down to the same core emotion, which is fear. We are scared of what we will lose or what we will live to regret. And that, I think, paralyzes our decision making in all aspects of business, personal and professional life. And I think that is the pursuit, is really learning to undo and unlearn the fear that's been ingrained in us for a really long time. Well, I suppose the counterpart of that is confidence, isn't it? I see the supreme confidence of people I know and I think, wow, they just never take a backward step. They just forge on. And I don't know that women are necessarily as well wired to do that. We're more risk averse. Yeah, I I think so. I always talk about this well-known kind of view of the world, which is that Everything is based on love and fear. And I really do think that confidence boils down to that core emotion of love and being able to be so present and so open to possibility. And what that really is, is vulnerability. And vulnerability requires us to be open to all experiences and accept that some of those may be painful experiences or challenging experiences. But in order to feel the warmth some part of us needs to be cold. And I think that's the really tough part because, and I'll be honest, I don't know what it is specifically. Sometimes I wonder, is it, you know, that we've been the way that we've kind of been nurtured or as we've grown up, or I'm sure a psychologist would kind of offer a very interesting perspective on it. But I think ultimately that fear is what prevents us from being vulnerable. And from being vulnerable is where breeds confidence, where we can create possibility, where we can create opportunity. If we're not open and we don't share, how can we connect? And I think that's going to be the next beautiful thing to happen for a lot of people is this being able to learn how to better do that. And like I say, it's a lifetime pursuit. Brené Brown's work, I think, has been incredibly transformative in terms of exposing people to how being vulnerable can make us more confident, can make us feel more valued and can help us better connect with others. So it's been fantastic to talk to you. It's, I mean, interesting as always. Before we go, just tell me about your website and your newsletter so that people who want to know more can follow it up. I have a website called lostxfound.co and I call it Lost and Found. It's a newsletter in its purest form. And with that, I write long form storytelling content about personal improvement for young, ambitious people. On my website, there are also some resources. So how you can start your own reflection practice, how you can set better goals. And I am also um, about to launch some online courses and practices that will be available as part of a community group as well. Oh, we'll put it all in the show notes as well, Sue, but it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your very valuable hour at the beginning of the day up there. 
Since I did the survey work for Unpaused, I've become evangelical about data and looking right into it to see the patterns that emerge. Suad's approach to weekly journaling, with or without pastry, is a good one. As she knows well from her role as a marketer, when you think that companies all over the world are spending millions to find out what you think, so that they can influence your decisions, and especially what you buy, imagine how valuable this sort of deep personal information would be to them, and you have it right at your fingertips. The process she describes reports on your most intimate and private reflections, what you think, what has moved you, and what has made you feel good. It's a gold mine. And just imagine how you'll feel when you come back to those notebooks six months on and see where you were and where you've come to. No one ever came up with a good plan without assembling some intelligence first. And every plan starts with a blank piece of paper. And if you don't want to call it self-reflection, call it data gathering instead and get to work. Suad's website has all the information you need. It's called lostxfound.co and her details are also in the show notes on the Unpaused website. If you've listened to my interview with Emily Brooks, you won't be surprised to know that she and Suad are great friends. Between the two interviews, there's a lot of good advice as well as the deep thinking behind it. And just because they may be a lot younger, there's no reason why this advice doesn't apply to older women struggling to make a start with something new, big or small. Share the interview with your daughters by all means, but don't stop there. There are notes on the website that will help you to go deeper if you want to know more. Thanks to Leonie Marsh, Claudia Cameron, Jason Milhouse and Lana Christensen. And thanks to Suad as well. Until next time on Unpaused, farewell. <laughs>